When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to people employed in fields potentially imperiled by the results of the recent U.S. presidential election. These are the stories of passionate people doing difficult, hugely important jobs, jobs that may get a lot harder and a lot more important in the years ahead. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump often spoke in in careless tones about nuclear weapons, seeming to suggest that it wouldn't be a big deal if other countries acquired them. To find out more about what that meant for people working on international policy, we stopped by the campus of Georgetown University to speak with nuclear nonproliferation expert Matthew Kranick, an associate professor in the Department of Government and School of Foreign Services. Kranick has dedicated much of his career to pushing back against the spread of nuclear weapons, which helps explain why he joined more than 100 other Republican policymakers to sign a letter condemning Trump's foreign policy stances during the campaign. He talked to us about how he got involved in nonproliferation in the first place and led us through one recent project he's been involved in, the attempt to prevent 3D printing of nuclear weapon components. He also spoke about the other elements of his career, including teaching and campaign work, before turning to the important questions, why he'd consider working with the Trump administration, what we should do about nuclear weapons as we move ahead, and how afraid we should be. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Kranig tells us about nuclear weapons in the movies. How realistic are they? If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Matthew Kranig, and I'm a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University, specialize on nuclear weapons issues. What does that mean uh, to work on nuclear weapons issues? What do you do in that area, in that space? Yeah. Well, in a way, I have six jobs. You know, I'm a, a professor here at Georgetown, so I teach courses. Uh, but I'm also an author, so I write books and articles and policy reports on uh, nuclear weapons issues. I'm a consultant. I consult with government and private sector uh, on these issues. I'm an advisor. I've advised uh, political uh, candidates uh, and, and politicians, members of Congress, and uh, let's see how many uh, how many is that? Um, I lost count. You have twenty five jobs. Twenty five, yeah. but they all it seems like they all circle in one way or another around the nuclear issues that you work on. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, international security and, and foreign policy mm-hmm. uh, broadly. So I have written on other issues, but uh, my focus has really been on on nuclear issues, both non proliferation, uh, kind of the spread of uh, nuclear weapons, but also nuclear deterrence, and you know how do we use nuclear weapons as a tool of foreign policy? How did you become involved in that space in the first place? Well, I, I started graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley, in August two thousand and one. And I actually went in thinking I was going to work on European political economy. I had just spent a year in Florence, Italy, and was interested in, in European uh, politics. And then September 11th happened a, a few weeks into graduate school. And um, many people at the time were asking, you know, what if bin Laden had had nuclear weapons? Or, or what if he gets nuclear weapons? What if instead of flying planes into the World Trade Center, he, he had uh, set off a nuclear weapon in New York? And so I became interested in that 
uh, question, could bin Laden get nuclear weapons? Uh, and ended up writing my PhD dissertation on on why countries have helped other countries build nuclear weapons uh, in the past, thinking that if we understood that, we could understand better whether countries might help terrorists uh, acquire nuclear weapons. Mm. So what does progress look like in your work? What does it look like to make substantial change? What are you pushing for? Well, uh, it's one of the nice things about working on nonproliferation in particular is that there's kind of bipartisan consensus that other countries possessing weapons of mass destruction and, and nuclear weapons is not in the United States' interest. Mm. So I think the, the first and most obvious goal is stopping the spread of, of nuclear weapons. So, you know, there's kind of two sides of why countries build nuclear weapons. They have to want nuclear weapons and they have to have the ability to make nuclear weapons. And so a lot of our nonproliferation efforts are focused at one of those two sides of the equation. What is a practical way that you and people in your field go about trying to do that? Yeah. Well, there are international uh, regimes in, in place that try to restrict the spread of sensitive nuclear technology. So the nuclear suppliers group is probably the best example. It was set up in 1975 after India's uh, nuclear test and basically tries to make it hard for countries to get uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing technologies. But uh, and one of the things I'm working on now, the technology is always changing. So for you, what does that involve? How are you helping us adapt and adjust to changing technologies? Yeah. Well, there's one project I'm I'm working on right now looking at 3D printing and nuclear weapons proliferation. I think some people are familiar with plastic 3D printers that people can use to produce toys for their kids or other things. But there are also these uh, really kind of state-of-the-art metal 3D printers uh, that are being used already to produce jet engines and, and all kinds of other things. Uh, and so, uh, in short, as it relates to nuclear weapons, uh, these machines could be used to produce the component parts for a nuclear weapons production program, uh, making it much easier for countries or even terrorist groups to build nuclear weapons and making it harder for us to to stop them from doing that. So how did you get involved in that in the first place? How did you discover that this was something worth looking into. Yeah. One of the things I do is is consult. And so I'm a consultant to Lawrence Livermore uh, National Laboratory in California. Uh, so the United States has two nuclear weapons labs, Los Alamos and, and Livermore. Uh, and so at Livermore, uh, there were some people there doing research on 3D printing. Uh, and could 3D printing be useful for producing weapons or uh, the component parts of nuclear weapons? Uh, and part of the reason they were interested is because uh, if the United States could do this, it could potentially reduce the nuclear weapons budget and the defense budget uh, because for a variety of reasons, printing uh, these parts is cheaper than producing them the old-fashioned way. But some of the scientists there began to, to realize that uh, there may be a downside uh, to this as well. You know, often new technologies have an upside and a downside. And so the downside is that it could make it easier for, for other countries to build some of these dangerous technologies. Um, but these were scientists. They weren't as familiar with the, the policy uh, space. And so uh, I had some discussions with them. I, I realized uh, that this was a problem and uh, decided that uh, we, we needed to, to do something about it before there was a kind of 3D printing enabled cascade of nuclear weapons proliferation around the world. So once you realize that this was a problem, something that needed your attention, what is the next step for you? Yeah. Well, well, the first step was learning more about it because, you know, I, I'm a political scientist by training. So understand uh, the kind of politics and policy of nuclear weapons proliferation pretty well. 
uh, but I'm not uh, a scientist or a nuclear engineer. So I, I needed to have more discussions with people who understood the technology and understood uh, what was uh, possible. And I uh, partnered with a, a co-author, Tristan Volpe, uh, who was at Lawrence Livermore at the time. And so he and I decided to write an article. Uh, so we wrote an article. It was published in the Washington Quarterly uh, Policy Journal here in, in D.C. that kind of put the issue on the table. But, you know, and I think a lot of people think of a publication as the end of, of the process. But in a way, it's, it's maybe the middle of the process because that then brought attention to the issue that led to a whole series of other conversations and initiatives. In that initial publication, though, are you just saying this is a problem, this is something that we should be paying attention to, or are you already at that stage proposing policy solutions, technical solutions, and so on? Uh, so we identified the problem first, and then we do uh, identify solutions. The problem is in foreign policy, you're often dealing with a situation where you only have bad options, and it's kind of a question of what is the, the least bad option. Uh, so the solution we proposed was kind of updating our existing system of export controls to include 3D printers. But one of the challenges is uh, 3D printing is a dual-use technology. So the same machines that you can use to produce, say, centrifuges for a nuclear weapons program, you could use to make children's toys. And so if we're going to try to control the spread of these 3D printers, uh, which is what we recommend, then you know how do you deal with, I don't know, uh, North Korea saying they want to import these to produce children's toys or uh, Iran or Venezuela or whomever? Uh, and so there is this, this dual-use uh, problem. And so there are advantages to controlling this technology, making it harder for countries to produce dangerous military technology. Uh, but you're also restricting uh, what's potentially uh, an important tool for future manufacturing and, and economic growth and economic development. Uh, and uh, so um, that led to a whole series of follow-on discussions of how would you do this well to kind of maximize the upside potential while minimizing the downside risk. At that point, though, those discussions are still happening within the paper itself? Or are we talking to you now about how they spread to larger world as that paper circulates? So we recognized some of the trade-offs in the article, but advocated that at the end of the day, it was still worth trying to control this technology. Uh, but shortly after the article was published, we did kind of a launch event at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a think tank in Washington. And so many people with an interest in this showed up, uh, industry showed up because, you know, in general, industry doesn't like export controls because we're saying you can't sell these things to other countries for national security reasons and, and industry likes to sell things. Uh, so they, some people were there were expressing concerns. You had international lawyers in the audience who said, well, there are important intellectual property rights issues here because, you know, 3D printing essentially makes it easier for other countries to kind of rip off other technology. You know, they can kind of reverse engineer it uh, easier. When you talk to uh, industry people uh, about something like this, are they just blowing off your concerns or are they trying to find some kind of middle ground? No, I think, um, you know, most of them are reasonable. And so they do realize that there's a potential uh, danger here. Um, but they also, I think, have the view that in general, we've been too restrictive in the past on export controls. Uh, and so uh, one of the things they argue is that the United States often puts in place these tough export controls, but then other countries sell the stuff anyway. And so the bad guys are getting the technology and other countries are profiting for it. Uh, and so maybe it makes sense for the United States to be a little bit looser uh, in its export control policies that, you know, maybe we'd have some kind of control over the recipient if they're getting our technology uh, rather than somebody else's. 
both sides recognize that there are uh, advantages and disadvantages, but I think maybe the the balancing is is a little bit different depending on on where you sit. How do you get from that kind of juggling act of trying to balance all of these things to actually contributing to policy formation to lawmaking? Yeah. So since then, uh, me and and my co-author have continued some work in this area. Uh, One of the things we did, we met with people at the State Department and uh, did kind of a presentation uh, on on this issue and and what our concerns are. We're told now that there is an interagency working group in the U.S. government uh, looking uh, at this issue uh, and trying to figure out what the appropriate policy response is. Uh, And so I think there are you know, probably uh, a number of other people who recognize this as an issue at around the same time. But, you know, I'd like to think that our work in some way contributed to this. And fortunately, as an outside analyst, it's not my job to, to make the decision. My job is to point out the problems, uh, try to provide some analysis on, on the cost and benefits of different approaches. Uh, but at the end of the day, it'll be up to people, uh, you know, down the street to, to make the decision about what the best way forward is. So if I can sum all of this up to some extent, a lot of what you do is about identifying problems, learning about those problems, thinking through them, and then trying to express them in a way that uh, will help others, lawmakers, policymakers, uh, act directly on them down the line? I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, will, will ask, well, don't we have the U.S. government uh, to do that? Why, why do we need think tank experts or academics uh, to do this work? Uh, and the answer is often government officials are so busy on the day-to-day work. You know, they're spending 100% of their effort on getting ready for the meeting next week. Uh, and so they don't often have the ability to take a step back, say, okay, what are the big over-the-horizon emerging challenges? Uh, what are some of the strategic options for addressing those? What are some of the things we might want to be doing now to make those problems less severe down the road? And I think that's one place where kind of outside analysts like me can really have an impact because we do have the the time uh, to kind of take a step back and do some of the broader and, and deeper thinking. When you are meeting with people at, say, State, uh, as you did, what kind of level of folks are you talking to there? Who do you speak to when you speak to folks in the government hierarchy? Yeah, well, usually uh, it's to the people at the kind of working levels of government, you know, in, in the bureaucracy. So there are a number of offices at the State Department that deal with nuclear weapons uh, proliferation. And so uh, those are the people I talk to. You know, because somebody like Secretary Kerry is so busy, pulled in a million directions, may not be able to, to devote much attention to this. But if he has people working for him, devoting a lot of attention to this, then they can uh, put some serious thought into it and develop more workable policy proposals that, uh, you know, eventually make it into uh, his inbox and into U.S. government policy. Because presumably the secretary is not going to be the one who writes the policy in the first place, even if he wants it. Yeah, that's right. Often the senior uh, officials are kind of signing off on policy initiatives that kind of bubbled up from lower levels of government. There are, it seems like, a huge number of fairly abstract variables when we're talking about something like 3D printing a nuclear weapon. And on the other hand, there are these extremely specific, concrete consequences to failing to take in one way or another the right approach to all of them. How do you balance all of that abstract stuff when you are trying to confront the problem of nuclear proliferation more generally? I think it's a problem with all policymaking, whether it's, you know, healthcare policy or, or nuclear policy or, or tax policy. You know, you're always basically trying to predict the future twice and then compare those futures to each other. You know, if Obamacare goes into effect, what are the consequences, positive and negative? Uh, if we don't put Obamacare into effect, what are the consequences, positive and negative? So you, 
try to predict the future twice and then compare those futures to each other and then try to make some judgment about what we should be doing today to affect that future. And so I think it's no different uh, with with nuclear policy. You know, what, what does the world look like with the Iran deal? What does it look like without it? Uh, which of those worlds would we rather live in? And so at the time you're making the decision, it's kind of abstract and about the future. But, you know, once the decision's made, the, the future uh, is becomes the present. When you're thinking about possible futures, uh, how many of those hypothetical tomorrows are just apocalyptic hellscapes? <laughs> uh, there was a, a great book written in the Cold War by a, a scholar named Herman Kahn called Thinking the Unthinkable. Uh, and in that book, he explicitly argued that people often shy away from the apocalyptic hellscapes. But unfortunately, I, at least in the field that I'm in, I think you do have to think through those apocalyptic uh, hellscapes and, and not shy away from it. Because, you know, if you just kind of uh, assume things are, are going to be rosy, uh, you're often caught by surprise. You know, Pearl Harbor, September 11th, there have been the global financial crisis. You know, sometimes really bad things happen. And so I do think you have to consider those uh, among the possibilities. Obviously, hoping that things go better, obviously trying to design possibilities to to avoid those, but, you know, uh, being motivated at all times by trying to prevent those uh, hellscapes from coming into being. Is that ever a bummer, though, having to spend a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your energy thinking about just the literal end of the world, <laughs> professionally having to do that? Well, I, th I think different people have different uh, inclinations, you know, so I do think there are some people in this field who do shy away from those issues and so focus on kind of rosier issue areas or policy solutions. I've always gravitated to the really hard problems. And I think in, in part, it might be I was a philosophy minor undergrad history major, but philosophy minor. And, and in philosophy, I always really like the, the really hard questions. And, uh, and so I think it's the same in policy really hard questions. Like if Iran is one screwdriver's turn away from the bomb, do we let them have it or do we take military action? Uh, those are the kind of questions I find really interesting. Do you spend much of your energy trying to think about or anticipate how other state actors might use nuclear weapons, what they might be thinking? Definitely. Uh, I think it's an important part uh, of the job. Often, policy analysts in the United States will so-called mirror image. You know, they assume the other guy is just like us and assume that their policy will look something like ours. But, you know, that's uh, a simplifying assumption, but it doesn't represent reality. So I think you do have to try to get inside uh, the other person's head, especially when you're thinking about something like nuclear deterrence. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're trying to deter Russia from using nuclear weapons, some people would say, well, um, you know, if one nuclear weapon went off on New York City, the threat of that would be enough to deter us. Therefore, if we have one or two nukes, that should be enough to deter Putin. Maybe that's true, but it might, uh, I think it's more valuable to actually try to figure out Putin, figure out the people around him, what, what is it that they're concerned about, uh, and what is it that it would take to deter them, rather than just assuming that they're exactly like us. You've been listening to nuclear nonproliferation expert Matthew Kranick. After this brief break, he talks to us about teaching and his work on Republican presidential campaigns. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, 
but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So we're here today in your office on the Georgetown campus, and you are also a teacher in addition to uh, a policy person, uh, an area expert. Um, What do you teach? Yeah, well, I teach uh, two courses every semester. So uh, this semester I'm teaching Monday and Wednesday afternoons, uh, and I'm teaching a big introduction to international relations course. So I have 250 undergrads, five teaching assistants. It's a big, uh, big production. Um, But uh, government and School of Foreign Service are the two most popular majors here at Georgetown, so there's huge demand. And then I'm also teaching an upper-level course, more specialized course, called uh, Nuclear Weapons and World Politics, where we spend an entire semester uh, going into these nuclear weapons issues. How much of your research feeds into uh, your teaching in these these courses? Uh, when you first start out, you know, you're rewarded for research. And so I think many kind of junior scholars focus much more on the research and kind of uh, skimp on on the teaching or try to do the bare minimum. You know, over time, I've realized how much they, they contribute to each other, you know, because as you do research and gain new insights, you can bring that into the classroom and make the classroom uh, discussion more interesting. Uh, but I think one of the dirty secrets of teaching is you learn almost as much from your students as they learn from you. Uh, and so it's amazing some of the insights my students will have in papers or in classroom discussion. And so I have in, in the past kind of taken uh, ideas from the classroom and, and fed that into my research to make my research even stronger. Does teaching help you communicate these really urgent issues that you're working on elsewhere in your career? I think it does, uh, you know, because when you're forced to communicate these ideas to 18-year-olds, uh, I think it forces you to uh, kind of take a step back and break things down in, into the basics and then build the argument up kind of layer by layer. Uh, whereas I think some of my colleagues who don't teach, who are used to speaking to experts all the time, often take too much for granted. Uh, you know, because when it comes to briefing, say, a, a member of Congress or a more senior policymaker, uh, they're not thinking about 3D printing and nuclear <laughs> proliferation all day, every day. And so for them, again, you do kind of have to, you know, kind of like talking to an 18-year-old, start with the basics and work their way up. And they're both smart, but again, you can't take too much for granted. I'm sure our lawmakers would be happy to know that the best way to get through to them is to talk to them like an 18-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and again, it's not because they're not uh, capable, but it's because they're they're not as, uh, you know, uh, immersed in these issues as as I am. Yeah. A lot of students from Georgetown, I assume, end up in state and elsewhere throughout the bureaucracy and government system more generally. Have you ever run into a student uh, that you've taught uh, in one of these more formal settings outside of the classroom? 
Yeah, it's one of the nice things about teaching at Georgetown is that our students go off to be more important than we are. So um, <laughs> I've had a uh, former PhD student who uh, became the national intelligence officer for WMD proliferation. So the top intelligence officer in the country for for these issues. I have uh, one of our recent PhD students just got elected to Congress in, in Wisconsin. And so it's one of the nice things about being at Georgetown, I think. I'm sure I'm biased, but I think better than probably anywhere else on earth, it bridges the gap between kind of academic uh, scholarship and and policymaking. Uh, and so because of that, our, our students go off to do interesting things. And then also they'll come back and kind of pull us in. You know, they, they think that we've uh, had uh, insights or expertise that they've benefited from. So they sometimes call on that uh, expertise, even when they're, they're in government. It seems like a lot of your time is spent uh, when you're not speaking to students in the classroom, uh, is spent speaking with uh, other people in a variety of uh, contexts. I think you attended some conferences, some meetings uh, internationally last week in Russia and Japan. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Uh, so it's one of the uh, nice things I think about working in international politics is that if you're going to do it well, you do need to travel and speak to your colleagues uh, abroad. Um, and good for frequent flyer miles uh, <laughs> also, but maybe maybe not so good for my health. But yeah, yeah in the past month, I've been to Tokyo, Prague, and Moscow. Wow. Uh, so in, in Tokyo, I was talking to colleagues there about uh, the North Korean nuclear threat and kind of U.S.-Japanese uh, alliance and dealing with North Korea. I was in Prague for a big conference at the Czech Ministry of Foreign Affairs on President Obama's Prague agenda. Uh, so April 2009, Obama gave a big speech in Prague promising to rid the world of nuclear weapons. So a uh, conversation about that. How, how are we doing? Um and then in Moscow, it was a meeting on uh, U.S.-Russian nuclear cooperation in the new uh, Trump administration and, and what might that look like. Mm. Uh, so that's another area where I get insights that then inform uh, my research and, and policy work uh, subsequently. You've also served uh, as a policy expert on a handful of political campaigns, presidential mm -hmm. campaigns. I think I, you were part of Marco Rubio's mm -hmm. uh, primary bid uh, most recently, but also the Romney campaign and... Uh, and others. Um, when you're working on a campaign, how much of your time does that take up? Uh, it really depends on on how senior or junior you are in the campaign. So when I was working for Romney, that was my first time working on a campaign. Uh, so I was on uh, the, the counterproliferation working group. Uh, so I was just working on on nuclear issues. Um, but you know, he had a whole team in place of so you weren't people. on the trail with him every day or something, like not that. on the trail with him every day. He had a kind of big, uh, team in place. And, you know, the idea was that if he won, then he could kind of bring, uh, these people, uh, with him to government. Um, in the Rubio campaign, I was, I was more senior. So I was working on the kind of full range of foreign policy issues. So that, uh, took up, uh, more time, you know, kind of rapid response, uh, during debates or, um, you know, kind of the daily news, something happens first thing in the morning, Iran takes U.S. sailors hostage. Mm. Uh, you know, well, w what should the candidate say about this? Are you on the phone with a bunch of people? Are you in a meeting room with people? Uh, usually it's done remotely. Uh, so email, phone, and, um, you know, the candidates do have usually a foreign policy coordinator or foreign policy advisor who is uh, with them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so then that person's job is to kind of coordinate with the rest of us to to bring in expertise. You know, the other thing I'll say about this is that, you know, if you'll notice during presidential campaigns, the, the policy debates are usually pretty superficial. Uh, and so, you know, the need for kind of in-depth policy analysis on a campaign is, is usually uh, not very great. It's more about the kind of rapid response and, and what should we say in response to uh, X or Y developing event. Is that frustrating to 
not be able to get really in depth with these issues that you know so well, that you care so much about, that you focus so much on when you're working a campaign? At first it was, but then I realized that the foreign policy team in a campaign serves a, a few functions. You know, so one is to staff the candidate uh, during the campaign. And so that sometimes is, is superficial. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other function is that if your candidate is going to win, then those are some of the people who are going to help fill out the bureaucracy. So behind the scenes, I think there is some more in-depth thinking going on about, you know, if we actually win, uh, what is our policy agenda going to be? How are we going to follow through on some of these promises the candidate made, uh, like, you know, uh, tearing up the Iran deal on day one or, or other things that may sound good on the campaign trail. Uh, but when it comes to uh, implementing them in practice, it become much more complicated. When you're working in that kind of conditional mode, though, that if we win attitude <laughs> must be a strange way to go about thinking about stuff that's fundamentally quite urgent. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess, you know, there are a number of different ways to influence the process. And so the most direct way is to go into government and work on these issues. But then there are these other ways on the outside developing the, the policy proposals that uh, maybe you can use to influence whoever is in power or that you can uh, kind of keep on the back shelf when your side goes in. You know, in Washington, you basically have to, if you want to work in senior levels of the government, you have to choose a side. And so we tend to kind of switch eight years or so in, eight years or so out. And so there are a lot of people who do a little bit of both, you know, try to influence policy in government, but then spend their time outside of government developing policy proposals or trying to influence whoever is in power. As a Republican, you've been, at least on the executive side of things, you've been on the out of power side for the last eight years, for the most part. Do you still feel like you're able to contribute to policy and process during those times? I do. So I, I did go in on a Council on Foreign Relations fellowship. So it was a nonpartisan fellowship to work uh, in the Obama administration for one year as an advisor on Iran's nuclear program in, in DOD. So that was uh, one way to contribute directly. But I've, I've also contributed uh, in other ways. Uh, you know, I, I think national security and especially, as I mentioned before, nonproliferation are, are kind of nonpartisan. Democrats and Republicans agree other countries getting nuclear weapons is a, is a bad idea. And so if there are people doing serious analysis, even if they're not part of your team, uh, you know, I think the team in power will pay attention and take your ideas and proposals seriously. You've been listening to nuclear nonproliferation expert Matthew Kranick. In a minute, he discusses the prospect of working with Trump and considers how afraid we should be. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump made some fairly glib comments uh, about nuclear proliferation, uh, suggesting we should just let various countries have them or what have you. What was your reaction to that at the time as someone who works in a much more detailed, much deeper way uh, on these, these yeah. questions. Well, he did make a number of comments on nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, he said, uh, you know, why are we paying so much to defend our allies? Why not just let them get nuclear weapons and defend themselves? And so he mentioned, I think, Japan, South Korea, and then was asked, uh, the journalist asked, what about Saudi Arabia? And he said, Saudi Arabia, sure. So that is very different from the way uh, I think every U.S. president has looked at these issues since 1945. Uh, since 1945, there has been kind of a bipartisan policy of preventing the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries, even to our closest allies. Uh, you know, we worked to prevent Britain and Israel uh, from getting nuclear weapons. We failed in those cases, but you know, our preference at the time was that they not have nuclear weapons. So uh, 
certainly an unconventional approach. I mean, my hope is that that was uh, just kind of an an off-the-cuff statement and doesn't actually reflect how he'll govern. And I think some of these recent appointments, General Mattis and other, I think, people who have more traditional views on nonproliferation will adopt policies that help the United States continue to have a strong nonproliferation policy. And that's what I hope. You were, however, one of I think 100 plus Republicans uh, working in this kind of policy space, security space, signed a letter uh, expressing concerns about Trump uh, earlier in the the process. Yeah, that's right. There were a number uh, of letters. And and so I signed this letter back in March. Um, So I was working for for Marco Rubio at the time. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I uh, wanted to help my my candidate win. And uh, so um, uh, signed on on to that letter. Um, you know, now that, that Trump is is president, though, I, I think that president uh, elect at this point, president elect, but will will soon be yeah. uh, president, uh, assuming nothing unforeseen happens. <laughs> right. uh, and so I think we you know, are all better off if, if he can get the best possible people uh, around him. And so uh, I think me and, and many of my colleagues who, who uh, opposed him in the past would be willing uh, to go in and, and and help with policy if we're welcome. What do you think nuclear policy should look like in the years ahead? How, how do you hope to be involved with, with that process? Yeah. Well, I would like to see uh, some smarter export control policies to deal with these 3D printing technologies. Mm-hmm. One of the other things I've uh, been writing on and worried about is, is the renewed Russian nuclear threat. You know, so for 25 years, we didn't really worry about Russia. Suddenly in the past few years, it's been more aggressive. It's been making, you know, invaded Ukraine, invaded Syria, has made explicit nuclear threats against NATO and the United States. And so, you know, this is kind of the dilemma of, of nuclear policy. On one hand, you want to stop the spread. On the other hand, you do want to use them to deter other countries from using them. And I'm afraid that our kind of deterrence policy in NATO and uh, right now is a little bit weak and that we could do some things to strengthen that to, to make it clear to Putin that, you know, he can't get away with this nuclear coercion and, um, you know, can't get away with, uh, with nuclear use, certainly. Um, the Iranian nuclear deal, I think, is another uh, issue that uh, will likely be revisited. Uh, Trump has, unlike some of the other candidates, didn't say he'd tear it up on day one, but he said he'd renegotiate it. You know, so some people think that's, you know, kind of rash or, or crazy. You know, but the truth is that even if President Obama had been president for life, he would have had to renegotiate the deal as well because all of the restrictions on Iran's program expire after about 10 years. Uh, so, you know, six, seven, eight years from now, Obama would have had to, to renegotiate as well. Uh, so Trump will likely do it earlier than that. But uh, this is something that I think we would have had to address somehow, uh, regardless of who is president. And you hope to be involved in these processes in one way or another? I hope to be involved one way or another. And you know, so I, I, depending on the conditions, would be willing to go back into government. Uh, if not that, I hope to contribute from the outside. And you know, given that uh, I'm a registered Republican, have a lot of contacts on that side, I think mm-hmm. if I don't go in directly, chances are friends and colleagues will. And so I should have a pretty good pipeline. Do you think that people should be afraid uh, about the status of, of nuclear proliferation around the world right now? I don't know that I want to advocate that people uh, live their lives in, in fear, but uh, at, at the same time, there is a real risk. And I think the, the threat of nuclear war today is probably greater than it's been at any time since the end of the Cold War. Uh, you do have a more assertive Russia, again, kind of making these explicit nuclear threats in a way uh, we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War. Uh, North Korea expanding its nuclear capabilities, uh, still the, the risk that a terrorist group could acquire nuclear weapons. 
so I think there is a real risk out there and, and people, uh, you know, shouldn't assume that nuclear weapons are, are a thing of the past. You spend all day, every day thinking about this stuff. Are you afraid? Mm. No, I think I spend so much time thinking about it. Uh, that sometimes it, there's the risk maybe that I, it doesn't even seem real anymore. It's, you know, it's like, uh, it's just like my work. It's, it's what I do every day. Um, so I guess I don't live my life in, in fear day to day, but I, I do, I think, understand very well there are risks. And, you know, one of the analogies I use is uh, the global financial crisis, uh, because right before the global financial crisis, I think there were a lot of people who thought, you know, a new Great Depression is, is a thing of the past. Like, yeah, we did that you know, 70 years ago, but we learned our lesson. We've got better policies in place. The world is different now. We're more enlightened. And something like that could never happen again. And then it did. And I, I sometimes fear like the general public and, and even some experts think the same way about nuclear weapons. Uh, we used them in 1945, but that was 70 years ago. We're more enlightened now. The world is different. We've got these policies in place. That could never happen again. Uh, and I'm afraid that will seem self-evident until uh, nuclear weapons are, are used again. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, nuclear weapons are used again uh, in my lifetime. So it's a low um, probability, but the consequences would be quite severe. So, um, yeah, I wish I had better news, but there, there is a real risk. Are there things that people can do if they're feeling anxious about, uh, issues of nuclear proliferation in the years ahead? Yeah. One thing people can do is, uh, write, uh, senators, write congressmen, um, elect politicians who share their views on these issues. Um, but for the most part, nuclear policy is kind of an area of high politics, and it's it's harder to uh, affect from the outside. So I think if people are really passionate, uh, what they should do is is come study nuclear issues with me here at Georgetown uh, and go into this uh, field themselves. Uh, and there is actually kind of a gap in expertise. You know, after the end of the Cold War, there was a sense that these issues were going away. Uh, now I think it's clear that they're they're not going away, and and I think we do need a new generation of experts on these issues. So not an immediate solution, but an important one. <laughs> not for everyone, but I think there are a few people out there who may be passionate enough to want to devote their lives to it. And if so, I would encourage them to do it. Uh, what do you like most about working on nuclear nonproliferation issues? What makes it such a great career to be operating in this area? Well, I think there's a lot of psychology research that shows that uh, one of the ways to be happy is to, to be passionate about your career and feel like you're working on something that matters. Uh, and I think this is something that really matters. I mean, you know, nuclear war is one of the only issues that means that we're all dead in, in 30 minutes. That and zombies. <laughs> that and zombies. Yeah. Maybe not 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I think this is something that, that really matters. The stakes couldn't be higher. And so uh, trying to get this right, you know, and contributing to that process, even if it's only uh, a small contribution to a larger effort, uh, you know, I do feel like I'm doing something important. And so that makes me excited to get up every day and come into work. Yeah. Uh, what's the most frustrating part about it, though? Mm. It, were there ever moments when you you feel helpless or hopeless or, or just disappointed in the world? Hmm. One thing that's frustrating is, I guess, when you're out of power and the, the government uh, in power is doing something that you think is a bad idea. And, you know, you can you're writing op-eds and you're meeting with your colleagues in government, but still it's clear the policies uh, going ahead despite your best efforts. Uh, and so that can be a little bit frustrating. Uh, on the Iran uh, nuclear deal, for example, I, I did think that uh, allowing Iran to keep an enrichment program uh, 
uh, with these short expiration dates was a bad idea uh, because I felt like it gives Iran kind of a patient path to the bomb. Mm. Uh, and so uh, either we have to renegotiate or or we, we kind of gave up and, and let them have this program. Uh, and so I was writing my concerns from from the outside. But, you know, in the end, the, the deal went through. And uh, so, uh, yeah, you win some and you lose some, I guess. Do you feel generally like you're making the world a better place with this work? Uh, in, in general, I do think I'm, I'm making the world a better place. Uh, you know, I've, there are a number of policy initiatives where I, I think I have uh, contributed and, and think that you know, the outcome might have been different had I not been involved. And then also, you know, through my research and teaching, I think I'm shaping uh, in some way the, the way a generation of, of citizens or you know, some people going into this field think about these issues and those first impressions, I think, can, can be lasting ones. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Rogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. And you can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Special thanks with this episode to Rob Morgus and Ian Philbrick. Thanks also to Afim Shapiro and AC Valdez, who just gave me the thumbs up from the recording booth. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.